Thank you. And may I say it's an absolute privilege to be here today. Thank you, Dennis, for your kind words. I was really hoping you were going to say he comes from a little country town and see if he could name the country town, but uh, you took the safe option. A lot of people, when we say to Goulevar and they look at it, they say, how on earth do you say that name? But it's great here to be in Pakenham. As Dennis said, today is a new day. And as believers and as myself, I believe today is not only a new day, it's a good day. It's the start of a new chapter in the life of Pakenham Baptist Church. And in my very short time here, I've seen a church that is made up of people who have a deep compassion for Jesus. And that excites me. Even though thanks to different situations and circumstances, the church has been through some hard times over the past few years. I think most people now believe the church is in store for some good things and some good times. Today is my commissioning service, a day in which, in a way, you as a church put an official stamp on my ministry that you voted me in for about a month ago. Well, let me tell you, when a person like myself is called to pastoral ministry, it's a bit of a scary thing. I mean, as Dennis said, my parents are here today. Well, actually, my dad is here today. Sadly, my mother had a fall and uh, she wasn't able to make it, but um, she's pretty tech savvy. She's learning and she's watching from home. So hi, Mum. Now, if you were to ask my parents, what did I share with them about my calling to Pakenham, about coming to Pakenham, they would tell you I had some very mixed feelings. But a new pastor to a church isn't just a scary thing for the pastor. It can also be a scary thing for the church. A lot of the times questions get thrown around and questions go through our heads. Perhaps some of the questions thrown around could be, is Garth going to fit? Is Garth going to be able to deliver what the church needs? Is Garth going to be able to meet the needs of the church? Well, let me reassure you because I can answer all of those questions. And the answer is no. You see, the problem with all of those questions or statements, they all have an I problem. They're all based on Garth. They're all based on me. Can I do this? Do I do this? Will I do this? Do you know, I don't believe any pastor starting a new ministry or continuing any ministry for that matter should ever come from this perspective. I mean, that's a bit like how Satan started his quest. We read about that in Isaiah and Satan says, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost high of Zion. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. That's how he started. Now, it may sound great. I mean, he sounds like a real go-getter, a guy who's going to take him and his followers to the peak. Sounds like a great passionate start but we all know how he finishes. That's why I say that even today, even though it's all about a new start, a new beginning, today we are celebrating the start and beginning of my new ministry with you and your ministry with me. But let me tell you, today I'm not really thinking about the start. I'm thinking about the finish. Now, don't worry, I'm not saying I'm leaving in a few years or anything like that. I'm not saying, okay, let's get this over and done with so in a couple of years I can leave and finish well. That's not what I'm saying and that's not where my thoughts are today. 
My thoughts are this, Garth, while it's good to start a new ministry well, what's more important is how are you going to finish that ministry well? And I think the only way to make a ministry start and finish well is to like this, to understand this. It's not about me. When people ask me what's the role of a pastor, I say for me, I believe the role of a pastor is to do two things. One, point people to God. Two, then get out the way. Sadly, at times I haven't done this. I know Garth has been too much involved in trying to do things himself in my ministry. Well, let me tell you, that never works. While it's true the pastor who's called to serve God in this way finds no greater joy, and yes, I consider this unique privilege being called as a pastor of this church, I must always remember the most important thing for me to do is point people to God and then get out the way. That's why it's been said, one should be a pastor only if they cannot be a pastor. And this, I believe, is what you are commissioning me for today. But let me tell you, you're not only commissioning me to a new ministry today as your pastor, you're also commissioning yourselves. I know my commissioning here as pastor to this congregation, to this suburb, is not a lone shepherd leading a flock. I'm being commissioned to be part of a team. I'm a part of a team that is a remarkable group of people who've dedicated and passionate about Jesus Christ, as I said at the start. Every person who loves Jesus with all their heart is a core team member of this commissioning service. Each one here who is a Christ follower is my partner in the gospel, my fellow co-worker in Jesus Christ. So today you are commissioning me as your pastor. Well, you know what you're commissioning yourselves as? Priests. We may only have one pastor, but our church is surrounded by many priests. 1 Peter says this, but you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look around. Seriously, look around. See the white collars. This church is a church of royal priests. Priests that exist to declare the praise of God who have called each and every one of us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Priests that share the commissioning of the mission to show Jesus Christ's love to a lost world. That's who you are. And among this royal priesthood, this body of believers are the gifts of God needed and intended to be used for his mission. The gift God needed for this church to function healthily are present. Where in you? No one is here by accident. So yesterday you are commissioning me to the new ministry as your partner, but in doing that, you're also commissioning yourselves in a new ministry with me as priests. And just as my new ministry isn't about me, let me reassure you, your ministry is not about you. It's about Jesus. For sure, we all have gifts and talents that we bring to the table. As I just said, the gifts that God needs for this church to function are here and present. Everyone who's a part of this church has the joy and privilege and responsibility to use their gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. 
but it is still not about what we can bring or what we can do. It's about what can Jesus do through us as we come together. So today we are commissioning each other. I want to look at what things can Jesus do to us and help us. What things can we do to start well, continue well, and finish our ministry well? The helps I'm looking at today come from those verses just read out from Hebrews 10. In these verses, we learn some things that we can do together that are a great help in starting a ministry, continuing in a ministry, and finish a ministry well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for celebrating a new beginning. It is exciting. Um, I am so thrilled and blessed to be here with these wonderful group of people. I thank you that you've not only brought them into my life, but you've, um, we've, we're connecting with each other. Father, I pray that now as we open up your word, may you speak to us, challenge us, encourage us. And Lord, I pray that we will leave here feeling blessed and encouraged in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Before I start, let me give you a very quick, don't worry, it's not Bible college, a very quick background to the book of Hebrews. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we are sure about the reason and purpose why it was written. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to Christian Jews who were thinking of turning away from the Christian faith and going back to their Jewish faith. That's why the book was written. Why would they do that? Because they were receiving a lot of persecution in following Jesus. And so in a way it would have been easier to go back and become Jews again. The writer knows this. The writer knows that his readers once had a love for Jesus. They had experienced Jesus in their lives. Yet because of the trouble they received from those around them, it was easy for many of them to go back and turn their back on the old, on new system and go back to the, to the old system. It's like the old saying goes, it's easier to die for Jesus than to live for him. This is why so much of the book of Hebrews is a bit of a history lesson of the old and new covenant. The writer is pointing out the new covenant is the truth. In fact, the, only, in fact, the old only pointed to what they had just experienced. That's why the writer is wanting people to keep following Jesus. So in a way he's saying the old system was only in place to make way for the new. Do you know, if you truly want to follow the old system, then your way to do that is by following the new. As you read the letter, you can hear the writer's heartbeat. You can grasp the desires that he has, the desire that his readers of this letter continue to believe that Jesus is the promised sacrifice of the new covenant, the new high priest over God's house, the one of all of Jewish history pointed to, this is a desire that you can hear throughout the book. This is the heartbeat that you pick up. And so then we get to chapter 10 where he makes a passionate plea and he gives us some things that we are to do together. In fact, he gives us four that were read out before. And the first one is this. Let us draw near to God. Play a game. hope you don't mind games, but let me ask you a question. I don't have prizes, but can anyone tell me who used to live here? Sorry? Now, if I had a chocolate, Keith, I'd throw it to you. Correct. Elvis Presley used to live there. He used to live here. 
No, Michael Jackson. Yes. He used to live here. Anyone? That's Princess Diana's. Oh. What about this one? Who used to live here? Ah, Harrigans. You're doing well. What about this one? Who used to live here? God. God used to live there. The reason I showed you these photos is they help us understand how powerful these words are of let us draw near to God in context. You see, we know whose houses the first slides belong to, yet we've never, ever been inside any of them. I mean, if any of us did try and turn up to any of those houses, we'd probably just get thrown out and arrested. You see, you and I could never be bold enough to just enter their homes. Well, no old covenant worshipper would ever consider entering this home. There were rules, there were regulations. No one would be bold enough to enter the middle bit where God lived behind that curtain, which was called the Holy of Holies. It was only open to the high priest. He was the only one that could go into God's house. And even then, he could only enter it once a year. Just to remind everyone of the barrier between people and God, a thick curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now remember, these readers were wanting to put themselves back under that system. And if they did that, none of them could ever draw near to God. None of them could ever go into his home. It would be like if you and I happen to know some of those famous people that I mentioned before. And let's say you happen to know Elvis Presley and you had an open invitation to his home whenever you liked. He said, come, my house is your house. And then your friends got wind of it and they start to bug you constantly because they want a piece of the action. They want to come with you to Elvis Presley's home. And over time, you really get annoyed at their continually bugging you. So you've got to put a stop to it. So what you do is you ring up Elvis Presley and you say to him, look, it's too much of a hassle being friends with you. I know you have this open invitation with me, but my friends just keep pestering me. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the time when I didn't know you at all and I wasn't invited into your home because then my friends won't, weren't pestering me. None of us, chances are, would ever do that. Yet it seems these Christians, these Christian Jews, that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to close the door on the door that had been opened and offered to them of drawing near to God. As I mentioned, the old covenant high priest visited the Holy of Holies once a year. But with the new covenant, we're invited to dwell in the house of God every moment of every day. What a tremendous privilege. What a complete and utter difference. We are told in Mark's gospel, when Christ died, the barrier, that curtain was destroyed. It tore. Do you remember? Where did it tear? It tore from top to bottom. This opened the way for all to draw near to God. This opened the way for all to be a part and live in God's house. Only the death of Jesus could tear that curtain, that barrier, and open the way into that heavenly sanctuary where God lived. We come home to God through him. 
let us draw near to God. Have you ever heard of the term, make yourself at home? I know this is a term we use a lot when we have some visitors. But let me tell you, it is almost an impossibility for someone else to come into your house and make yourself at home. Imagine if I said, I've got two visitors at the moment. Imagine if I said to them, look, come and just make yourself at home. None of them can do it. If you say to me, come to my house and make yourself at home, I can't do that. You can't do it at mine. Why? Because it's not your home. Your home is your home. I don't know about you, but I often agree with Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. Home brings safety. Home brings security. Home brings fun. Home brings love. Home brings family. These are the things hopefully all your homes experience. Having Dad here, we've been talking a lot about my upbringing and just different stories. And, and as I said, I grew up in Broken Hill. And my dad was uh, heavily involved in um, basketball. And I remember every Thursday night in Broken Hill, I used to go and stay with my gran. I used to catch the bus from school and go and stay at her house. And like most kids of 11 and 12, I was afraid of the dark. People say, I'm not afraid of the dark. I, I was. I hated the dark. Well, I remember on Thursday nights when I stayed at Gran's house and my grandpa never had a car and drove and Gran never had a car and drove, I would go to the basketball stadium. It wasn't a problem because most times it was like this in daylight saving. The issue was coming home. Let me show you this. This here is South Broken Hill. This here is the basketball stadium. My, my grand lived over here. To walk, I could go a number of ways. I could go this way, which was quite long. But Broken Hill had lanes almost, if you see all these laneways, in every street there's laneways. Only one issue with them laneways, there's no lighting. They're dark. Or there's this big park and I could just walk to this corner and cut through that park and be at Grant's house. One problem with Patton Street Park, there was no lights. I remember the nights, some nights I got the courage to go through the laneways or to go through the park. How do you think I went through them? Fast. Boy, I ran through those things like nothing. There was only one thing on my mind as I was going down those laneways or through that park. I must get home. I must get home. The closer I got to home, it was a great relief. And then getting home and seeing my grandparents always had a special feel about it on those Thursday nights. The feeling was this, Garth, you're home, you're safe. Let us draw near to God because that's our home. We are his, in his kingdom. As I said, the Christian Jews were facing huge persecution. As we face persecution, what great advice for us. Draw near to God. Go home and sit in the Father's presence. This is your spiritual home. This is where you'll find safety, security, family, fun and love. The great news, as the writer points out, is this. We can come with full assurance and boldness. Our boldness isn't in anything we've done. Our boldness is in everything that Christ has done. Jesus has torn that curtain. In fact, it's even greater than that. 
There is nothing that we can do that will open up our access to God and there is nothing that we can do that will close it. People have said to me in the past, there seems um, to be a barrier between them and God and they can't draw near to him. I say anything that gets in the way of us drawing near to God comes from us. God has done everything to make the way right for us to come into his presence, into his home. Jesus is that assurance that we have. Jesus allows us to enter the presence of God with boldness and confidence because he intercedes for us. This is what the writer of Hebrews is on about all throughout the whole book. God has done so much for us. God has taken the obstacles away that stopped any of us drawing near to him. Let's not rebuild them. He says, guys, let us draw near to God. The next thing he says is this. Let us hold on to hope. I guess at face value you realise these are strong words and dare I say hard words. Remember, these words are written to people who are facing trials. In some ways, I guess they had no hope, but he says hold on to the hope of Christ. I'm not sure about you, but I know a big problem I have is I let my circumstances around me determine how I feel and how I act. You know why this happens? Not because of what circumstances I'm facing. The problem is my hope is in the wrong thing. When I go down this track, my hope is determined by what's happening around me, by what am I feeling and everything like that. When this happens, I have to say to myself, Garth, get your eyes off yourself and back on Jesus. Stop putting your hope in unswervingly things that are wrong. Don't put your hope in always having a peaceful life. Don't put your hope in never facing trials. Put your hope in Christ. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, which is our hope. What is the hope we profess? Jesus. If we haven't put our hope in Jesus to start with, everything is going to fail. Everything. I'm not sure if you remember, and I mentioned it last week about that song, Have Faith in God. We're not meant to have have put our hope in faith. We meant to have our hope in Christ. If you have put your hope in anything else, like job, money, friends or family, if your hope is tied up in these things, when you face trials, your hope will fail you. When our hope is in anything other than Jesus and trials comes, that will be the times when, like me, you'll get upset and wonder what's going on. When our hope is in anything other than Jesus, that's when we will let our circumstances determine our behaviour and what's going to happen. On the other hand, when our hope is in Jesus and trials comes, you realise this. Your trials work for us and not against us. For he who has promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly, not letting go of the hope. Next he says, let us consider one another. You know, it's not our job to change each other. It's not our job to push each other. When we come together, it is our job to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's not even our job to come together and smile and just pretend to be nice. As I've read this passage before, I've often thought, how do we do that? How do we spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Well, what's the best way we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds? 
If I was to ask you, when was the last time you spurred someone else on towards love and good deeds, could you answer it? Sadly, I haven't come up with any great formula, not that you should want one. But one thing I've learned is this, the way people respond to us generally comes down to how do we treat them. I know when I did my counselling thing, the psychologist used to say the best way to change someone's behaviour is not by telling them what they're doing wrong, but by telling them what they're doing right. Think of your own lives. When is it that others have spurred you on towards love and good deeds? Is it when you're being shot down and condemned? Or is it when you're being loved and encouraged? I know the principal at the high school I've been working at for the last seven years. He often made a comment to staff. He said, most students won't remember what you've said to them. But he says, I promise you this, they will all definitely remember how you made them feel. It's not just students, it's adults, it's young, it's old. Most people won't remember what we say to them, but they'll definitely remember how we made them feel. We never can tell what type of impact we can make on another person's life by our actions or lack of actions. But I do believe God will take our actions and use them in mighty ways. If your desire is to meet together and spur one another on towards love and good deeds, God will use that. Next, he says, let's, not, let's meet together and encourage one another. I said last week, the longer I stay here, um, the more you'll learn from me that there are, some, there are some statements that I'm passionate about. Well, it won't take long for you to discover that I'm passionate about the importance of meeting together, but not just on Sundays. I know some of the folk from my last church got sick of me drumming into it how important it is that we meet together and not just on Sundays. I can't help but think fellowship with God never should become a selfish thing. Fellowship with God should always lead to fellowship with other Christians. I often say the first thing that God does when he saves us is he takes us and puts us in a loving family. Why does he do that? Because we complete one another. Sadly, apparently some of the wavering believers here had been absing in themselves. They'd been withdrawing themselves. And I guess the more they did that, it was easier to become and go back to the old covenant system. It's interesting, though, that the emphasis here in this passage is not on what a believer gets from the meeting, rather on what they can contribute to the meeting. He says, let us come together so you can encourage one another. The way we are meant to contribute to others when we meet to endeavour is encouragement. That's why I believe it's important that you don't stay away from opportunities to meet together. When you stay away, you're stopping the encouragement you can bring to others. We need each other. Seriously, I'm not here as a lone ranger. As I said, I am part of a team. How can we encourage one another? Put our desires aside. People have asked me, what do I hope to do when coming into this church? It doesn't matter what I hope to do. My motto in life is, um, and it's not mine, but it came from doing a course called Knowing God's Will by Henry Blackleby. He says, Christian often prays, God, what's your will? What's your will? He says, that's the wrong thing to pray. He says, what you do, he says, you look for where God is working and you join him in that. The way we are to meet and contribute to one another is encourage one another. 
That's why I believe it's important that we don't stay away. We've got to put our, des our, our desires aside and put our others' needs before us. Do you know, there's a, there's a verse in Romans where Paul says, put, um, consider other people's needs more greater than your own. Don't worry, I don't think I'm going to do this here. But I remember when I went to the Aboriginal community, they were quite legalistic. And they believed things like that drums are on the devil, you should never have drums in church, the King James Bible was the only Bible that you should read. Hymns were the most important thing. Don't sing choruses and everything like this. And so we, we had this meeting of should we introduce choruses to the service? And so I got to the people and I said, guys, do you believe in the Bible? Oh, yeah, pastor, we believe in the Bible. Eh? Yeah, Bible, good. And I said, um, I said so, and I, I pointed out that verse to them. I said, put, this, put other people's needs before yourself. I said, what do you think that means? And they, they told me what they think it meant. I said, well, here's where the rubber hits the road. I said, if you're a hymn lover, you should come to that meeting wanting to vote for choruses because you're putting their needs before your own. And I said, but if you're a chorus lover, you should come to that meeting and vote for choruses, uh, hymns, because you're putting their need. Have a guess how many of them did it? None. How often do we come with pre-agendas to church or meetings and we want to get our desires across? You can't encourage one another when you come from that point of view. You encourage one another when you put other people's needs before you help, before yourself. This is what needs to happen between us all in going forward. As you know, I know for some people it's very easy for us to encourage them when we get along with people. There are people we just click with and we can encourage them easily. But what about those we don't get along with well? You know, I know there are Christians who are my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and I would hate to be stuck in a lift with them for more than 10 minutes. You know the ones in your life, the ones that irk you, get under your skin, the ones you don't agree with all the time. Well, let me put this challenge to you this week. Pray for one of those people this week. Ask God to reveal how can you go out of your way to encourage them? How can you go out of your way to spur them on? I remember I've had great mentors in my life. I'm probably about three. And I was really struggling with this guy. And, and I said to my mentor, I've had it up here with him. You know, I, I'm sick of him. And, um, and I was calling him names and my mentor said, spend a week praying for him. Just spend a week, just pray. And do you know how hard it was to go to God? And I would go to God and I'd say, oh, this little rat bag. <laughs> and over the time, I started to see him as God would. And God changed me. And that's why I say, if you've got someone that really actually pray for them. Because God will reveal to you how he sees them. And then he asks us to do the same. I love the words of Paul. We shared this the other night, actually in the church to Ephesus. And he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Let me tell you, this isn't psychology, people. This is how true Christian relationships, whoops, works itself out. I don't know, I just dropped it and bumped it. Sorry. In real life. Yes, I know it's hard. I know that living as a Christian is hard. You and I may think 
Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to be patient and love each other? Why would I want to be humble and gentle, kind and keep unity and peace? Well, it's because of this, because God's done it for you. Another one of my favourite sayings is this, God never asks us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. You look at your life. God has been humble and gentle with you. God has been patient and bearing with you. God has kept unity and peace with you. And now he says, do that with others. How can you do that with others? Because he's already done it with us. So yes, this is a new day. It's a good day and the beginning of a new and exciting time in the life of this church, a time when we're all being commissioned together. I hope and pray that it is not only a great beginning today to our ministry, I hope and pray that it's a ministry that continues for a long time, and I mean that. But I also hope and pray that when it comes to a finish, we finish well. How do we do that? Remember, God has done a lot for us to bring us into his family. And yes, we do have that great high priest over this house of God. So let us draw near to him. Let us put our hope in Jesus. Let us consider one another and spur each other on. And let us meet together and encourage each other. That, I believe, is how you finish, continue and finish well. Start, finish, continue. Blessings. Blessings.